Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of At the End of the Line, celebrating International Podcast Month. I'm Richard Oliver, and I'm from the audio drama At the End of the Line. I hope you enjoyed a special audio drama minisode. Content warning. This minisode does contain descriptions of violence. Hello fellow survivors, and welcome to a special episode of At the End of the Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. Why is this episode so special? It's not really about England at all. Long-time fans will know I've made a few different podcasts about living in the post-apocalypse, and the first one I made was The Thirteen Colonies by Zeppelin. A little bit of background I should give for anyone who is not familiar. Some years ago I found myself employed on a Zeppelin. My job was to be a spotter. Essentially this means you helped out wherever you were needed, but part of your job was to keep your eyes open for odd things. Signs of some apocalyptic thing going on. For example, a mysterious seal on the wall was not something you just wipe off and think no more about. You need to find out what had caused that stain. And it was probably just a careless porter who had spilled something. But it could also be the sign of an evil creature that can move through walls, and those stains being the only physical trace it leaves behind. And yes, that did happen. There was a lot of time to fill on the Zeppelin, so I started a podcast, and the rest is history. Life on the hindsight was far from the luxurious existence I have on board this train. It was cramped, dirty, and uncomfortable. We lacked many basic resources, and equipment frequently broke down, including the Zeppelin itself. I should also say that when this was recorded, the Central Government Authority was a lot less sure of itself, especially in North America, and knowing that will help explain how some of this stuff happened. Finally, about me. I was a much younger man. I smoked, I drank, I slept little, I did terrible things like wearing jeans and trainers and digital watches. I was more reckless, but no more brave, which just gets you into bad situations that you cannot handle. The following was recorded at the time, but due to various legal, political and moral issues, wasn't considered suitable to be released. Fortunately, circumstances have changed somewhat since then, and I can finally bring you this lost episode. Hello to those still living across the world. This is Richard Oliver talking to you from the Zeppelin Hindsight. We're cruising around 300 feet and we're heading north of the east coast of America. On the last episode, I told you about our problem in Georgia, where the entire crew was very nearly murdered by a brutal warlord. We're still very concerned about his wife, Arabella, who we met and was such a lovely and kind woman. We had been hoping for a little peace and quiet for a while, but that was not to be the case. We were being forced to depart from our planned journey as the Central Government Authority had asked Captain Bob for a favour, the sort of favour it was difficult to turn down. Some CGA prisoners needed to be moved to a location further north, to the far, far north of the continent. We weren't taking them the whole way, but there was a lot of dangerous territory in between and travelling by Zeppelin was inarguably the safest way to get around. The CGA's presence in North America is spotty at best, and improving this is one of their key goals. We were to travel to one of their major bases in North America and collect the prisoners. The base was huge and looked like a small city, and in many ways it was, as the base had just about everything it could need to survive by itself. Solar power stations, intense farming installations, a hospital, a non-denominational house of worship, a library, 
These facilities and the huge and imposing walls keeping everything else out could keep the base going almost indefinitely. The hindsight landed just outside the base. While they did have the facilities for us to land inside, their security protocols forbade it. Anger spread throughout the hang site when we learned that none of us were to be allowed entry into the base because of, again, said security protocols. This base would have hot showers, plentiful food, a well-stocked bar, and we could have no part of it. And yes, it is true that the hindsight's crew have sometimes let ourselves get a bit carried away when given a chance to relax, but we all took this as a serious slight. Certainly not the behaviour of someone asking us for a favour. So, a few of us did stretch our legs in the field next to the base, but it was hardly the rest and relaxation we had been expecting. I did take the rare opportunity to smoke. The hindsight uses helium rather than hydrogen, so there is no danger of the whole thing going up in flames because I lit a cigarette. But like any vessel, the crew of the hindsight are superstitious, and smoking is considered very bad luck on a zeppelin. I don't share these superstitions, but I thought it wise not to antagonise my fellow crew members. It is undeniable that walking on solid ground is a pleasant change than being several hundred feet in the air. The hindsight is a wonderful vessel, but sometimes the piloting falls below what I consider a reasonable standard of proficiency, and some of the repairs carried out by the mechanics rely mainly on duct tape and optimism. So it is nice to be on solid ground, where whatever else might happen, it is literally impossible to crash. While finishing my cigarette, I saw the arrival of the prisoners we would be transporting. The doors to the base slowly opened and a convoy of heavily armed vehicles roared out and raced towards the zeppelin. The doors to the base shut again as soon as possible. The vehicles formed a wide circle around the zeppelin and as soon as they came to a halt the door swung open and soldiers rushed out. I watched all this slightly nonplussed. It was even more confusing when the back door of one of the vehicles swung open and six people were let out. Now these people were clearly prisoners. They wore matching grey outfits. They were handcuffed and even had their ankles shackled together, but it was hard to imagine six people who looked more homeless. I could easily believe they had hacked into the CGA cyber infrastructure or embezzled millions of marks or even designed some terrifying new virus, but they were not violent criminals. They looked like six typical CGA civil servants, polite, industrious and a trifle dull, and I was really beginning to doubt them as even white collar criminals. The one thing that stood out that genuinely suggested they were dangerous was the attitude of the soldiers. The six prisoners were under a tight watch with weapons already trained in them. The soldiers were tough veterans who had spent years fighting apocalyptic nightmares and they were not easily scared. I started wandering back to the zeppelin. I heard a noise to my right and the next thing I knew I was on the ground, a gun pressed against the back of my head. Soldiers were shouting all around me. It's okay, said Captain Bob running forward. He's one of the crew. The answer did not seem to satisfy the soldiers, and there was some more shouting and took another few minutes of Captain Bob's protests before they let me up. Even then they weren't finished. A bright light was flashed in my eyes and I was checked for weapons, and eventually I was released and got back on board the hindsight. Annoyed by my attack, I hurried back to my room. I am quite lucky as rooms go on the hindsight. I share a small room with just two other people. Sam Brandt an aged and skilled mechanic from Texas capable of fixing just about anything, and a woman who goes simply by Nova. Ostensibly an expert on mathematics, in particular making and breaking codes, Nova has proven herself useful in a variety of non-mathematics-based situations. Nova claims to be from Sydney in Australia, but she has little or no knowledge about Australia and has a pronounced Dutch accent. So while she may be a rather mysterious individual, she is an excellent roommate. 
If any one of the three of us is a problem, it is undoubtedly me. I woke up early the next morning and set about my work. The only equipment I am permanently assigned is a notepad and pen to make notes on anything suspicious. Any other equipment I need to borrow from the relevant department. I have a reputation, arguably justified, for borrowing equipment and never returning it. Being a spotter is not a terribly hard job, but it can be dull. The problem being, of course, if it is not dull, something very bad is happening. My first duty that day was work in the cafeteria, and I set about it in my usual half-hearted way. Half-hearted is pretty much the expected normal from a spotter, and I am far from the least motivated of the team. I couldn't help but notice the table occupied by the CGA prisoners and the soldiers who had accompanied them on board. The hindsight lacks any sort of dedicated team of soldiers or even guards, but there is an informal group of heavies who were called in as and when they were needed. In truth, the crew and passengers were pretty tough, but these men and women were soldiers, real soldiers who not only had weapons, but were trained to use them and trained to be able to squeeze the trigger when necessary. Some of the shackles had been removed from the prisoners, but they were still under heavy guard and they still seemed harmless. I got on with my work and was caught completely by surprise by the loud crash that came near the end of the breakfast shift. One of the crew, a technician called Nikki, had tried to stab one of the soldiers. She had charred at the table clutching a knife, but had been tackled and disarmed easily. Everyone in the room was on their feet, in shock at what had happened. Even Nikki looked quite surprised. The CGA is not always terribly popular on the hindsight. They make laws, collect taxes, and make odd and unreasonable demands on people. Plus, Captain Bob does not run a tight ship. I mean, we call him Captain Bob. Half the crew don't know what his last name is. And the crew took quite a bit of offence at the rigid discipline of the CGA. A lot of this comes from the crew being largely from North America. The heartland of the CGA is Europe and Asia. While over here, there's an attitude that people were doing just fine before the CGA came along. This attitude is completely incorrect, but it does exist. I know that my life was saved by the CGA. I had nothing, a child refugee with no parents, and I was taken in, cared for, fed, and educated. So there was tension between the crew and the CGA, and that was before they had broken Nikki's arm. People found it hard to believe that Nikki had actually tried to stab one of the soldiers, and most assumed the soldier had overreacted. Unfortunately, this was just the start of the trouble. As I've said, the crew of the Hindsight are a superstitious group of people. Sailors, pilots, submariners and the like often are. They all have stories of strange things they have seen under the waves or in the sky. Impossible things. Of course, these days the definition of impossible is very different from before the apocalypse. Winged beasts and sea monsters are very much de rigueur. So when I first heard about strange sightings, I didn't think too much about it. Until I heard that what was being sighted wasn't a monster, but another vessel. There are other zeppelins to be found on the east coast of North America, as well as a few other flying machines, but there are no passenger planes, no fighter jets, no helicopter gunships, and the stories that were circulating were not about zeppelins. There was something far faster and more manoeuvrable, something that could hover one second and dart away at high speeds the next. It was putting people on edge. The hindsight only has one weapon. At the very bottom of the vessel is a gun turret with a somewhat functional machine gun inside. In all my time on board it has been fired precisely three times. Twice to check if the thing still worked and once as part of an elaborate bet between two of the crew that resulted in both crew members being severely injured. But such was the mood on board that Captain Bob moved the broken lawnmower, folding chairs and empty filing cabinets out of the turret and had someone stationed there at all times. 
While this did little to improve the mood, it was at least some positive action taken by those in authority. Then the technical problem started. Power fluctuations which plunged us into darkness became daily occurrences. Radios became little more than a way to listen to static, and perhaps most troubling of all, engine failure. While engine failure on a Zeppelin isn't quite the catastrophe it would be on a plane, it is no fun simply being pushed around by the wind without any control. Usually these problems were fixed in a few minutes, but it was alarming. There were daily problems with the crew. The individuals and sometimes small groups attacking the soldiers, and even a couple of times the prisoners. Fights broke out between the crew, and while these aren't rare, the number and severity of the fights was troubling. So far, no one had been seriously hurt, but it was just a matter of time. The CGA soldiers also seemed to be losing their cool. Gone were the prime examples of discipline and control. They seemed increasingly erratic. I decided it was my duty to present to my superiors these problems. After all, I am a spotter, and this was certainly suspicious activity. While there is a chain of command that stretches from Captain Bob down to me, as a spotter, I do have the power to demand to see Captain Bob. This was so, even if my superiors were somehow compromised, I could still warn the captain. As I mentioned before, I like Captain Bob. Indeed, virtually everyone liked Captain Bob. The laid-back, generous and avuncular stereotype of Zeppelin captains might well have been based on him. But the Captain Bob I met with in private was a very different sort of man. I met him in his office, a messy, ramshackle place that Captain Bob normally used to store his best whiskey. I brought out my notepad and rattled off the suspicious activity, ranging from the odd behaviour of the crew to the technical failures to the bizarre science. Captain Bob did not seem to be taking it in, and I went back to the beginning of my notepad to start again when he held his hand up. He said he knew. Of course he knew. Every spotter on board had told him, and he wasn't an idiot. He could see it himself. It was the prisoners, he said. Same thing had been happening at the base. That's why they were so eager to get them moved on. The whole base had been falling apart. Soldiers fighting. The most high-tech equipment in the world practically useless. People disappearing for hours and then returning just as mysteriously. Drastic changes in mood turning mild-mannered engineers into maniacs. And all because of these six. Or so the CGA thought. They had been part of a team working on a prototype. Some kind of vehicle. That's all Captain Bob said and assured me all he knew. They had taken this prototype out for a test, and that was it. Vanished. Then three weeks ago they had turned up back at the base, back in their rooms, no explanation. Not all of them though. Another six were still missing, along with the prototype. And then things started happening. Much like had been happening on the Zeppelin. And while Zeppelins have spotters, the CG has a whole special team of people who investigate stuff like this, and they concluded it was because of these six people. When the six were questioned, things got worse with loyal soldiers trying to free the six, which actually led to deaths and the CGA took some more extreme steps in trying to control the situation, which eventually meant shipping them off to the other end of the continent. If nothing else, there were less people there, which is where the hindsight became involved. The CGA had, a, had approached Captain Bob about transporting the prisoners, and in all fairness, they had explained exactly what had happened and the problems with the prisoners. But they were prepared to be very generous and perhaps more importantly, Captain Bob didn't believe the stories. For every genuine story of impossible horror are a dozen more that are simply down to isolation and fear, and for a couple of weeks and a lot of money he was prepared to take the risk. I left Captain Bob's office feeling no safer, but at least knowing I had tried. All of these problems came to a head on August 14th. It had been a hard day, fights breaking out amongst the mechanics and even though the prisoners were kept in their quarters, 
there still managed to be nasty confrontations between the crew and the soldiers. It was late at night, but I was still working. It's one of the rare times I was in the cockpit, helping Captain Bob. A storm surrounded us, but we still ploughed on. Captain Bob was insistent we kept going. I think he wanted to get to our destination and be rid of the prisoners as soon as possible. Helping Captain Bob usually meant keeping him in plentiful supply of coffee, whiskey and copies of Ibsen plays, but on this night he had just paced the cockpit, not asking for anything. I checked the time on my watch and was about to ask if I could finish early when there was a loud juddering noise and then the engine stopped. Captain Bob snatched up the speaking tube connected to the engine room and asked what had happened. There was no reply. Moments later there were several short bursts of gunfire from the gun turret. We all looked at Captain Bob, who looked completely overwhelmed but knew he had to do something. He opened the small weapons locker on the cockpit. He took a shotgun and handed pistols to me and two others before telling us to follow him. Even though he didn't look much like talking, I had to ask Captain Bob what was going on. His only reply was to say he wanted the prisoners off the hindsight now. It was then that I noticed something very odd. We weren't moving. A zeppelin is never still. Even with the engines off, the vessel moved, especially in a storm. Something was holding us in place. The lights started flickering, and soon the only light was from the emergency lighting, which, as with most things on the hindsight, is not terribly well maintained. I didn't like having a gun at all. I had never fired one and couldn't imagine actually shooting someone, even if my life depended on it. And besides, who was Captain Bob expecting me to shoot? The soldiers? The prisoners? An intruder? I had assumed we were heading to the engine room, but I quickly realised we were actually heading to the quarters housing the prisoners. Even before we reached the quarters, we could tell something was wrong. First, it was a smell, gunpowder, and something more unpleasant which turned out to be blood. In the corridor outside the quarters was the aftermath of an intense battle between crew members and the soldiers. Seemingly unconcerned about the carnage around him, Captain Bob carefully picked his way over the bodies and tried the door. Finding it locked, he shot it and pushed it open. The six prisoners were still inside and looked terrified. Captain Bob levelled a shotgun at them and for a second I thought he was just going to kill them, but instead he told them to follow him. Again, I wasn't sure where we were heading but followed the captain. He led the way in front, I was behind him, then the prisoners and then the other two crew members. I felt sick with anxiety and fear. There was a sudden shot behind me and I spun round. The crew member at the back had shot the one in front of him. Captain Bob pushed me roughly out of the way and fired dropping the crew member. A moment later we reached the storage area and I knew what he was going to do. Captain Bob hurried the prisoners into the room, then leaving me to watch them ran to the other side and opened one of the large cargo bay doors. I could see out into the middle of the storm. Captain Bob pointed at the door and told the prisoners to get out. I shouted out for Captain Bob to stop this, that he couldn't just kill them. He walked over to me and hit me hard in the face and I fell to the ground, where for good measure he kicked me as well. He grabbed the first of the prisoners and dragged her to the door and flung her out. I could hear her scream as she fell. One of the prisoners, probably reason he had nothing to lose, died for the gun I had dropped. He snatched up the pistol but it was too late as Captain Bob fired first. The prisoner was still alive as Captain Bob started dragging him to the door. Just as they reached the exit, the zeppelin started shaking. Captain Bob froze in terror and then a bright light filled the room. It was like nothing else I had ever seen. So bright and intense, I could feel it on my skin. The shaking got worse and then it was over. I looked round the room. The prisoners were gone and what remained of Captain Bob was on the floor, burned beyond recognition. Slowly I got to my feet and walked over to the door. 
first few seconds I looked out into the storm but could see nothing. I closed the door and walked back to the cockpit. Susie Dillinger took over the Zeppelin and the next day made it to another CGA base and we tried to explain what had happened. Perhaps not surprisingly, this news was not exactly a shock to the CGA. Dillinger ordered a complete technical inspection of the Zeppelin, as well as two weeks rest and recuperation for everyone on board. But it wasn't necessary really, the problems all ended as soon as the prisoners left. So that was the episode you never got to hear. I recorded it at the time, but the CGA asked me not to release it. Not for the time being, and I had agreed, as I didn't really have much choice in the matter. I had thought that was the end of it, and that I would never hear about it again. However, true to their word, last week there was, the recording was returned to me and I was told I could release it. Long term fans may remember the episode that followed where I said Captain Bob had died in an accident on board. That was a lie. There are still questions to be answered. What was the vessel that had been spotted? What exactly was the cause of the crew's, including Captain Bob's, behaviour? What was responsible for the mechanical failures? At the time, I was 100% sure I knew what had happened. But experience has made me more sceptical of such fanciful conclusions. At the End of the Line was written, performed and produced by Richard Oliver. Victoria Dumendorf is our audio engineer who works on making anything sound better. Find Victoria on Twitter at Tyranitori. Tori also has her own brilliant podcast, Athena, a sci-fi audio drama. Go to athenapodcast.libsyn.com or search for Athena Podcast on Twitter. Special thanks to Hannah Wright for help with sound effects. Hannah's podcast, In Between, is a fantasy adventure audio drama which everyone should check out. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savon podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at postapocpodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please go to our website at the end of the line podcast dot squarespace.com.